0: Uh It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Remittances are one of the most costly pain points in the financial system. Every day, in order to make payments, Everyone from international business executives to refugees have to depend on costly payment rails
1: that can end up taxing the cross-border movement of capital. Now, this state of affairs is set to change as software engineers and financiers are embracing blockchain technologies as a means of dramatically lowering costs. But disintermediating legacy infrastructures isn't easy. And part of the process will involve identifying new and interesting players and products and getting them to market while also ensuring that they are compliant with anti-money laundering and know-your-customer obligations, otherwise known as AML and KYC compliance. With that in mind, I have on the show today David Lighton. He's the CEO of New Jersey-based Synfriend, a blockchain-based company that is attempting to facilitate payments to the Philippines. I had the pleasure of catching up with him at Ripple's annual Uber conference held out in Berkeley, California.
2: David, thanks so much for making it. Thanks so much for having me here, Chris. Really appreciate it.
0: So, David, maybe you can explain in basic terms where and why are uh, remittances in particular so challenging, and why have they been such a pain point in the financial system, uh,
2: really for for decades? So remittances are are so challenging because, first of all, constituents who purchase them as a, as a financial product don't have a huge voice. So I think that the kinds of innovation and improvements in efficiency that have touched other segments of cross-border payments, for example, bank account to bank account payments, haven't seeped into the community that buys remittance. And so if you get technical about it, the reason for this fundamentally is that people are giving cash to a financial service provider who has to go through a number of complex steps, everything from AML-KYC, which is more costly to do in person, to the even more complex supply chain of settling foreign currencies, all the way until you get to a foreign agent for disbursements who will actually hand another individual consumer cash. And so just these basic operational elements, the lobbying and innovation notwithstanding, make the service more expensive for users of remittances.
0: So ultimately, when you think about a remittance, so, you know, trying to give money to someone in the Philippines or, or anywhere else outside the United States, ultimately, there are a number of intermediaries. And at each one of those steps, there's an intermediary that's not only assessing or imposing a certain kind of cost, say if you're entering into a kind of correspondent banking relationship, uh, but also there's certain kinds of you know documentation and, and, and varying regulatory requirements at each one of those nodal points and so from that perspective then uh, why is it or what is it exactly that uh, blockchain technology is supposed to
2: to cure and and how there are two elements fundamentally and blockchain really touches on the the second one of them. the first one is the broader digitization of the payment flow so when you take the the cash element out of payments you're able to reduce the operating costs, for, for a couple of reasons. First, because the um, intake agent doesn't need to handle cash. And second, because in-person KYC is fraught with problems and fraud risks and money laundering risks. Whereas if you authenticate someone through an online portal, whether that's through Plaid or the ACH, the cost is generally lower. Right. Because you're operating on a platform.
0: So, so that, that means, in other words, I don't have to go into uh, someone's office to go through this know your customer sort of anti money laundering compliance. Instead, there are more automated or, or electronic measures. And so that that lowers the, the cost, basically, of those AML safeguards.
2: That's precise. I mean, even if not all the functions are automated, at least they're standardized. And so we know what we're doing. Whereas the potential for human error is very high when you authenticate someone in person. Um, but moving to the second reason, you know, cross border payments have this problem that they're controlled by legacy infrastructures like banks and like SWIFT, and they have been for, you know, four or five decades. And this is problematical because, you know, in the Valley or or even in New York, like we think of technology as kind of reinventing itself every couple of years, uh, or at least once or twice a decade, right? And when you look at a space that hasn't reinvented itself in four or five decades, that's obviously going to be problematic. And that's why we see the average remittance costing just a hair under 7% in the last World Bank data that came out. So what the blockchain does to remedy this is that it drives a lot of the transaction costs in the so-called flow of funds down towards zero. And so the biggest one in there isn't actually the cost of foreign exchange. As a matter of fact, it's um, the cost of working capital required to execute foreign exchange. And so what that means is that payment businesses get up in the morning and they say, hey, well, we're going to service about 10 million USD worth of, you know, for example, Filipino peso payments, and so we ought to buy 10 million worth. And when they do that in the morning, they tend to fund that payment, that transaction, with debt, which is very expensive, because there's a cost of capital, and then there's also an opportunity cost of that capital baked in, because you'd prefer to invest that money if you had it, right? Rather than stick it dormant into some foreign Vostro or Nostro account in another bank where it can't be used. Right? Precisely, it's going to get drawn down over the course of the day. And so if you took a snapshot of the global financial system, payments sort of sterilize and immobilize $10 trillion of liquidity at any given moment. If you took a snapshot of the global financial system, there are $10 trillion of liquidity that are just totally dormant waiting to be paid out and that could be in the capital markets and available to be borrowed. So what the blockchain does is it eliminates the need for working capital. It solved the double spend problem. And that would account for about 70-80% you know, of the cost savings that it creates. And net net, it's about 70% cheaper, like on the whole, to use the blockchain. Some other costs that it helps with are the cost of foreign exchange hedging. Because if your P&L is in one currency, your L, your, your you know your profit and loss, mm-hmm. um, the amount of money that you're making or losing in a given day, if that you know, statistic is denominated in US dollars but you hold some of your balance sheet, for example, in Mexican pesos, you're always at a risk because if the Mexican peso depreciates, you will lose U.S. dollars, right? So there are complex um, derivatives and other financial instruments that these kinds of firms have to buy to manage the risk of holding foreign exchange. But if you're settling continuously, like you can on the blockchain, and you don't actually hold foreign exchange, you drive that cost down towards zero because as soon as something comes on your books, it would tend to also come off. So there's a there's an onboarding
0: element that you mentioned, which where, where the costs are ultimately reduced, and then obviously uh, from the movement and and the settlement really of mm-hmm. of these different transactions, you can reduce those costs. When you consider the application of blockchain technologies to this particular space, you don't see lots of players. You see lots of people who are intending to get into the remittance space. Yeah. Why do you think, uh, there are relatively few players in this space? And, and are there any special risks, uh, or, or challenges to, to entry?
2: You know, that's, that's a great point. And I think there's two, like, principal reasons. The first is that it's, it's hard for incumbents, um, both because the cost of IT transformation is very high to incorporate new tech like the blockchain, and second, because the the chief compliance officers and also executive management of these companies are not that comfortable um, with new tech when they're subject to kind of the whims of their regulators, both at the state and the federal levels, who themselves don't really get along with each other. So that's, that's problematic. The second reason is that for startup companies to integrate these kinds of things, they also have to deal with state and federal regulators, and that has its own complexity. When you do this, you're integrating not just technology and operational elements like your average software company might, but the fact that you have to deal with regulatory requirements, both in the sending and receiving country. And so you're integrating a lot of disparate elements that don't really want to fit together. And by design, they don't. And if you're trying to standardize and create interoperable systems to settle financial transactions, that's really a heavy lift. And I think a heavier lift than most startup companies are capable of doing. And is there anything in particular that you've done in order to get this far? I mean,
0: uh, what is it um, uh, uh, in terms of your execution and, and, and your execution strategy that, that you've deployed that's allowed you to establish yourself and mm-hmm. to even begin operations when folks are still trying to think through exactly how to make it
2: work? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. So we've tried to learn the lessons from our predecessors, companies like Abra that really um, stumbled and took missteps with regulatory compliance. And so our philosophy is that Compliance is commercial. This is really just sales enablement. By building your business to the letter of the law and doing things that are going to make regulators happy and trust you, you're enabling commercial development. This is not a zero-sum game. You need both in order to grow. So I think that that's differentiated us. It might seem a little counterintuitive to build a tiny company that has bank-grade regulatory compliance, but our view is that that's what's needed to build something that can last.
0: Yeah, because you guys are are, are established just uh, in New Jersey, and you, you seem to have a very tailored, very specific sort of uh, business strategy. And and that's part of, I assume, that thinking. To, it's, a, it's a compliance-based growth strategy?
2: That's right, because um, y- you can't roll out a product in Every state at once, uh, especially in cross-border payments. So I, I would say that you know the the era of move fast and break things is totally over. <laughs> this it's is true. Yeah, it's in the past. And I think we you know we see that with Facebook. Um, we see that with a lot of different companies in the space. But the bottom line is that you need to do things that are going to be blessed by regulators, and that's everything from your you know your anti-money laundering policies and procedures to your risk assessment of your specific business to your flow of funds and the intermediaries like with whom you deal, and finally, the licenses that you get. So for us, New Jersey made sense because it was a simple place to start. It's a progressive regulator relative to New York and California, but still one that's taken seriously because of its proximity to New York. So
0: so how did you get into the
2: remittance business? I mean, how did it even enter your mind? I spent about seven, eight years living in D.C., um, for which I worked five in the World Bank Group. And, you know, a big portion of that I spent working on Haiti after the earthquake. And that was really inspiring for me because it was an opportunity to get exposed to so much of like the difficulty, you know, the human suffering. Uh, and the hard work that goes into helping a country recover from a natural disaster. But specifically, I was assigned to financial inclusion initiatives. and and I had the opportunity to to co-author um the financial inclusion strategy for Haiti uh, with their central bank. And we must have spent about half of our energy thinking about remittances, which account for, you know n- not less than twenty five percent of Haiti's GDP, which is really staggering, Wow, if you think about it. Wow, yeah. so uh, so twenty five percent, I guess, of all the money flowing. Comes from overseas. That's right. That's right. And and so that's more than four times what Haiti gets from big institutions like the State Department and the IMF and the European Union, right? And so when um, we sat with Haiti's central bank governor and he told us, like, look, a quarter of the GDP is remittances and they're taxed effectively at eight percent by payment operators. What can you do? And we were sitting there basically scratching our heads. And my thought, you know, as a person, was, well, this isn't right, you know international financial regulators should know how to deal with this problem. But when you're subject to um, the laws and the commercial environment in a foreign country where that value is being extracted, there really isn't anything you can do. So that got me excited about like looking more analytically at this problem and thinking, like, is there a technology-based solution? And that's where the blockchain came in.
0: Do you anticipate in the wake of Uh, Things like uh, Facebook's Libra and and a little bit more of the regulatory scrutiny that um, uh, certainly uh, blockchain technologies have attracted. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you anticipating a a, a tougher road or are you anticipating instead that um, as regulators become more familiar with this Mm -hmm. technology, uh, it'll just become more mainstreamed and what you're doing now will seem less uh, surprising uh, than it is right now?
2: You know, I think that's a great, it's like kind of the perfect question. Um, And it's a double-edged sword because while Facebook might not be serving its own interests, and in fact, I don't think that Libra will ever launch in the United States, I think they're fundamentally serving the interests of the industry at large because now cryptocurrencies are mainstream and they need to be taken more seriously by financial regulators. And I think that's Basically, a great thing. So, for companies like us and like Ripple, for example, who are already trying to do things in a regulatory compliant way that are innovative, it would tend to make you look really reasonable. Whereas before Facebook entered and upset so many people, kind of justifiably, um, you didn't look so reasonable. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think that Facebook has threatened. The monetary sovereignty of a lot of central banks around the world, and that's that's a huge deal. You know, I was at um, a roundtable the other day with a lot of execs from companies like GE and R three, hearing them talk about why regulators should step aside and let technology do what it does best. And the reality is that this is not an engineering problem. Okay, um, monetary authorities set price levels and monetary stability so that people can have jobs and so that there can be economic growth. So when you start to challenge those paradigms, whether that's like in a legal or functional sense, that's a really big deal. And I think that Facebook was really hubristic um, to to move the way that it did. And I think that's going to work against them in the long run.
0: David, thank you so much for joining the show. This was an interesting and really fascinating area of fintech. Thanks again.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Starting a fintech company, big or
1: small, is no easy task, and one of the challenges you'll invariably face, even if you have a good idea, is whether or not you have the resources to run a business efficiently and in a regulatorily compliant way. Now, some people seem to think that if you have good intentions and perhaps compliance issues may not be so important, but that's increasingly an incorrect and even fatal analysis. And if you want to be successful in some industries, like remittances, compliance has to be part of your scaling strategy.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at chrisbrummerdr, that's at C H R I S.
1: B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. FinTech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of FiscalNote, a global technology and media company.